Good morning, Sarah Hepla. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman, if that is your name. That is my name today. Let's see. Okay. Later. I don't know. Um, I uh, I just took a cold shower because it is July in New York City, and we're going to have thunderstorms today, which means that it it's literally just like waking up in a bowl of soup. So There are times when walking around outside in Texas, I just, the, the word hell mouth keeps coming to mind. <laughs> Hell mouth. How much? I'm just like, or the other phrase that hits my brain is dragon soup. I don't know why. I don't know what dragon soup is, except that that's what it feels like walking around in like over 100 degree weather in the middle of the afternoon in Texas. Do you feel a little bit like a bug under a magnifying glass, like you could just sizzle? Yes. I actually, like, I was going to visit somebody and I I, I had to drive there and it was an air-conditioned air car, right? And I'm going into the air-conditioned house. Because, you know, the one thing about Texas, I'll say, is that it's, like, tremendously climate-controlled, right? It has to So, be. yeah, yeah. And I just had, like, a one-minute walk to their house. And when I got to their front door. They hugged me and they were like, oh, you're burning. And I was like, no, that's literally like the one minute between the climate control of the car and the house. So I don't know if anyone else has been to New York City in the summertime. I can't, the, you kind of have to experience the quality of the grime. So of course I was also upstate at my mom's this weekend where it's just like beautiful and clear and you wake up and there are birds flying around. I saw, I actually saw a fox on the run the other day when I was driving. Foxes are cool. Oh, they're great. Um, but then I got to Chinatown and it's almost, well, it's not almost as though it is the case that there is about a half an inch of human grime everywhere. So you're literally just walking through hot human grime. And it's about as pleasant as it sounds. Um, so anyway. You I'm really come in close contact with the human smells and the humanness of New York too. You do. The only other place I've experienced it like that is down on Bourbon Street in yep. New Orleans when it was super hot. And um, we went to this, I mean, it's just like every smell, every bodily smell and super thick. And we went into this one place to get a po' boy, which it was like the really cool, it was like a little bar in the back, but they weren't serving them yet. So we left. And as I walked out, there was a pile of vomit on the ground with a shrimp in it. I was like, that's just summing up what it feels like to walk on Bourbon Street. So anyway. Um, so well, it's a very good time to stay inside and watch television. I was just going to say. So um, both Sarah and I have been working pretty hard during the day. We both have a lot of assignments and a lot of responsibilities. And at night, I'm finding I'm doing something that I don't often do, which is I turn on some television. Um I think we've talked before. I haven't had such good experiences trying to like latch onto a TV show. Um, I tried to watch. Yeah, you were having a really yeah. tough time for a while. Nothing was hitting. Nothing stick. Like the 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 one about Bad Blood, a book that I loved and have written many times about. They did the show. You liked Amanda Siegfried in it. She was great, but the show I couldn't I couldn't do it. Then there was the one about the the Russian hoaxer or what's her name? The um, inventing Anna. Inventing Anna. I I couldn't stick with that. Um, the staircase, I lasted about 20 minutes. I just, nothing, I was like, I don't care. You I know what uh, was happening to me was that I was watching the first episode of a lot of things and then being like, but 
okay, that was good. Like, I can recognize that it was, like, well-made and well-acted or whatever. But, like, what's the mystery here that I'm going to learn? Like, what is what is it that I'm going to... Like, why stay with these people? And and I, I did start to think, like, wow, we have really overcorrected into this serialized drama business. I just... I would watch movies of these things, but I just don't want to stay with it for a whole That's- eight, ten... you know, whatever. That's exactly right. Like the staircase, for instance, I started looking at it. It's like, I'm going to stay with this for 12 episodes for what? Like, who cares? I don't care. Um, Yeah. I just don't have that much time to burn. I have to be really selective about what it is that I'm watching in the evenings. I, I want, like, my thing is like, I want to learn something. And I think this is different maybe than other people who might just want to escape or like turn their brain off, you know, like. Yeah. Well, our, our listeners were great when I was saying this and someone said, Oh, have you seen station 11? And I had remembered, I had watched the beginning of that and I went back to it and I loved that because you're saying like you're walking to the mystery. You don't know what the hell is going on, but you don't care because they're just like taking you on this sort of interesting, odd thing that makes your brain sort of like cantilever in different ways. I had a friend actually was in town and um, she, I was like, I really like the show. She said, well, I'll watch an episode of you. So we watched it and she's like, well, I don't have any idea what the hell's going on. I was like, it's fine though, right? She's like, yeah, it was fine. So then the only show that I've really latched onto in the past couple of years has been Reservation Dogs for obvious reasons. My daughter's working on it. She's actually heading back to Oklahoma soon. And um, uh, season two premieres on August 3rd. And I love it because it it does something that we've never seen in entertainment, which is hanging out on Native communities with kids on the res, and it's funny, and it's sad, and it's it's just really new. Um, and then I heard about this show that everybody, everybody in air quotes, has been talking about um, called The Bear. And it, I knew it took place... In, oh, Go ahead. Uh, well, I was just going to say, I heard people talking about The Bear, and I had no idea what it was about. It is a show that is whose name doesn't really give you a lot of hints as to what it's going to be. No, but, not at and, all. And yet it is a very, it's a great name for the show, which yes. you learn sort of over the season. Yes. But, uh, but it was one of those things people were talking about the bear and it's like, what, what is that? So I was captivated by the idea because it took place in a restaurant kitchen. So couple things. Um, I happen to really like restaurant kitchen shows. I mean, I watched, you know, The Great American Bake Off and Top Chef and, um, you know, documentaries. Um, David Chang has incredible ones. Is that his name? Chang? David Chang is the guy that did Momofuku in in New York, which was my favorite, one of my favorite restaurants when I was there is sort of popularized ramen and pork buns and some of the, these things that you see, uh, in, I don't know. It, it it sort of like proliferated to other restaurant. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you could get like in Chinatown anywhere. But he took it to like yeah. a different level. That's exactly right. I should and, point and, out that's been yeah. in Chinatown for many, <laughs> many many years. He did not invent these things at all. But he did do it in a very interesting way, and he was kind of broy and and uh, and it spawned like a bunch of different um, momofukos. There was the dessert bar, which is great. Um, I used to stop there. There was a little outlet of it near where I lived on 14th Street. You could get like go and get a piece of crack pie, which now you're apparently not allowed to call it crack pie. I actually make really good crack pie um, at like 11 o'clock, which is just this butter goo chew yum. Yeah, what is crack um, pie? Crack pie is basically, um, it's a little, it's almost looks like 
uh, shortbread. You'd make it in a tin, but it's got some like goo and some crunch and it's just butter and sugar melting. It's really super delicious. And I'll tell you what, like I, we, we said if people become like, um, if you go on our site, you want to pay to be a member. It's like, if you wanted to become like a founding member, which means you give us anything more than $70 a year, I was like, I will send you some, uh, homemade cookies. I, I want, I bet I could send the crack pie. Because it would see the thing, someone's like, can you send me a pie? I'm like, how am I going to send a pie in the mail? Like a cherry pie? It's this Right. Like a, it went, yeah. I could send the crack pie. There you go. Incentive. But Ooh. um, but um, anyway, his show is, I think, called Ugly Delicious. And it's just incredible. I mean, hanging out with chefs for me, even if you're just doing it on a television show, is amazing because their curiosity is right. it, it's on every level. It's like it's it's tactile, right? And it's smelling and it's tasting and it's talking and it's making mistakes. And it's also, it's I've I've written this before. Feeding people is love. That's it. There's there's that's all it is. It's about the communion of putting food into another person's body. That that's what it is. And I don't care if you're flipping hash browns at Denny's. You are still engaging in that. And you can, of course, take it to any particular level you want. And another thing I, I was interested in seeing because I've also worked in kitchens. I've had no other job in my life except like working at the Children's Aid Society one summer teaching kids to swim, except cooking and writing. That's it. It's the only it's the only jobs I've had. I'm not qualified to do anything else. Can oh, I ask okay. you a question? Sure. How how did you learn to cook? Well, um, you know, it's funny because my mother, like, uh, you know, made dinner and stuff, and she was a proficient cook, you know, pretty good, I guess, except she overcooked the meat. She likes meat super, super well done. My, my brother and I would be standing out of the broiler going, Mommy, take it out, take it out. But no, she wanted it like shoe leather. And my dad could make a nice, uh, make a nice red sauce. His mom was Italian, so he made, like, a couple things. But I just wanted to cook from, like, the age of three or four, and I used to make, like, things for my dollies, and then I, um, I started baking on my own. I, I don't know if I told this story, but I made, I was seven years old, I made a banana bread from the New York Times cookbook, I think it was. And I was just by myself making it. And it called for um, half a teaspoon of soda, but we didn't have any soda. So I used Kool-Aid. Okay, there we go. It's baking soda, right? And then uh, it said cool on a rack, but I didn't know what that was. So I balanced it on the towel rack in the bathroom. <laughs> anyway, uh -huh. I... I always have loved to bake. I've always been the baker. I am the person that cooks for everybody. I love it. And my jobs, I worked um, I worked as a baker. Um, I worked as a caterer um, in Los Angeles and in New York. And I'm the person that always makes dinner. I, it, it, it just, everything about it makes sense to me. You were good at it. And so that meant that you kept doing it. And that meant that you got better at it. Well, yeah, you're, you, you, it's desire, right? It starts with desire. And then you get kind of good and bad and make and learn and mistakes. I mean, I've, I've made 7,000 mistakes. I remember one time making, um, I was working in a catering kitchen in Brooklyn. It was like the last, I love having a punch list. You get up in the morning, it's like, you got to peel the 40 pounds of shrimp. You got to make the this, you got to make the roux, you got to make the pound cakes. Like, I love going through that list and doing that. It was like the end of the day. I was like, you know what? I can get these Genoa cakes made. And I had it in the big industrial mixer and the girl I was working with, she's like, it looks a little weird. And so she tasted it and I dumped in salt instead of sugar, like four cups of salt. So, you know, you're constantly making mistakes in the kitchen, but here's the thing, you can fix it. You can do it better, which to me is a lot of the analogy of what a kitchen is. Who's in the kitchen? Okay, you don't need anything to work in a kitchen. You don't need documentation. 
You do not need a high school diploma. You don't even need any skills. And here's the thing, the kitchen, the chef, I mean, depending on where it is, you know, if you're at Noma, which is like the most, you know, famous restaurant in the world, um, or if you're at, I don't know, a Panera Bread. I'm sorry. I said all food is love. I'm going to I'm gonna make the exception. Oh, my Panera. parents like Panera. Oh, God, I can't. I only ate there once. I was like, I don't even know what to call this stuff. I, I don't, I, is this food? <laughs> it was so bad in any case. Um, who, the, a restaurant kitchen takes everybody, every single kind of person, people that have gotten out of jail. Okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to do some cooking. And it becomes this really kind of ragtaggy but forgiving place full of broken people, Right. And it it is also it you can just remake it every day. I and and I know this from experience. I mean, I could sit here and tell you incredible stories about the people that I worked with and, and anybody obviously that's read and everybody should, oh, please go read Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain. And I, I recommend reading it out loud to someone that you love or have someone that loves you read it out loud to you because it is just magnificently funny and and talking about like what a kitchen is and his own, you know, fallings down. And um, people are just trying to like manage in there. Anyway, I was very attracted to the show, um, The Bear. I didn't know what it was going to be. I had no idea. And it turned out to be, I'm sorry, I'm going to cry through this whole episode here uh, doing this with you. It turned out to be, for me, to be incredibly profound um, and, and moving. And I, you know, the acting is, it's, it's, off the charts. It's just off the charts, which of course you have to give credit to the show's creator whose name I'm forgetting. Um, it's Chris, someone? The creator of the show is Christopher Storer. Yeah. Um, he was a producer. He's he's collaborated with Bo Burnham, who is an artist that I like quite a bit. And he was a producer on a movie called Eighth Grade, which is an huh. amazing movie about the excruciating experience of being in eighth grade. In the same way that this... This show evokes the kind of high intensity battle zone of being in the kitchen in a way that I found sometimes difficult to take. Um, eighth grade <laughs> evokes the excruciating experience of being in eighth grade in a way that was so familiar, but also like difficult for me at times. Um, but so anyway, this is uh, he's the creator of this. Uh, the star is Jeremy Allen White who is in Shameless. He's the guy that plays like the, the main chef is, is this, did you watch the show Shameless? I didn't. What is Shameless? So it was a show on Showtime. It was the one with William H. Macy. Yeah, and it was about like this, like, family, you know, like kind yeah, of it was family. like a, dis I, I hate the phrase dysfunctional family, but that's the one that's coming to mind. But you yeah. know, like, they were a little, they were a hot mess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember the ads for it. I never, I never saw it though. Yeah, I never saw it either. So anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but go ahead. No, and then what is the, so, and then the name, you're, see, Sarah, listeners, as you already know, Sarah's much better at the details here. What's the other star? Eben, Eben something Bachrock. Okay, so Eben Moss Bachrock is Eben the guy who plays Richie, who is the, uh, co-owner of a restaurant. Why don't you give the um little the backstory okay. of the show? So there is a restaurant in Chicago. I it's it's kind of storied in in the in the uh in the show in the bear called the original beef of Chicagoland. And they basically are serving, you know, like 
quick, great beef sandwiches. It's like well-known, kind of looks like in a slightly rundown part of town, but it's been there for decades. It's been family-owned. They make also, I guess, they make a red sauce for family dinner, uh, which is family, family, family meal is when like what everybody in the kitchen eats before you, uh, before you go to work. Like you make a family meal, someone someone cooks it up. Um, so in the show, uh, the guy that's playing Carmi uh, is um, his brother had been the had been running the restaurant after his parents gave it up. And his brother, um, and I'm not we're not giving anything away to say this. You learned this at the very beginning. His brother has committed suicide and has left the restaurant to Carmi. Carmi or Carmen. Which is short for Carmen, yeah. Yeah, short for Carmen is um he has previously been, when he came back to take over the restaurant, because his brother left it to him, had worked in the best restaurant in the world. He was the chef at the best restaurant in the world. Now, they don't say it's Noma, but I think it might be. That's what they're sort of referring to, but I don't really know. I don't know. It doesn't matter what the restaurant was. So he comes back to this sort of, I'm not going to say it's a hot mess of a restaurant. It's a restaurant that's like kind of functioning. It's 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 got like it's it's got like a counter. It's not like a fancy sit down restaurant at all. And it's got a bunch of people that are kind of working. They've all got their problems. Some of them are working to their level. Some of them are not. And then this guy Richie. Now I'm not sure that Richie is part owner, but he was like the best friend of the guy who committed suicide. And he's in the restaurant now. When you first meet Richie. I'm sorry. He's just like a dick, right? He's just, he's loud. He's telling Carmi what to do. And what do you think you know? And what are you going to be all, oh, you're going to be all fancy here, right? You're going to blah, blah, blah. Well, so he's sort of almost playing, you'd say he's playing sort of the anti-hero, except as you stay with the show and and pretty quickly, every character, every freaking character in this show is a hero and an anti-hero. Would you, was that sound about right? Yeah. 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 So, Richie, pretty quickly, I would say by episode, it's it's eight episodes the first season altogether. Of course, there's going to be a second season. Please, dear God, let there be a second season. Um, he reveals a layer. Okay. I, I got to tell you, I don't know how this actor did this except for pure heart and some kind of knowledge of the peeling back of what's also underneath this character of Richie. That to me is, it was so crazily moving and continually so. And when we get to the eighth episode, I'm not, I can't, I can't tell you why. And, and Sarah's seen it. You, you, you watched the whole, I watched thing, right? the whole thing. Okay. There's just a, a particular moment when he's he's on a telephone, and that's all I'll say. I I it was I was actually watching it yesterday morning, which was weird. I don't usually watch TV in the morning, but I wanted to finish this episode. I was just weeping, I was just weeping, and and kept weeping, and then started weeping when I was making notes about what what this environment can foster, how people are breaking and trying not to break. And I, I gotta say, Sarah, for I'm gonna start crying. For a television show to give you this is it's kind of profound for me, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, um I all right, I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna hush for a minute and get some of your thoughts here. Sure. Well, this is not a show that I would have sought out if you hadn't asked me to watch it. Um I have a very different story uh, around cooking than than you do, um, which is that I I pretty much 
found myself allergic to it as I was growing up. You know, um, it was this thing of like, I, I think it was one of the ways that I proved that I wasn't a traditional female, you know, was that I'm not going to do the cooking. I'm not, I remember my mom kind of trying to teach me how, and, and, you know, in my family, my mom was a, was a pretty good cook, but one of the things she was a real early embracer of like whole foods, healthy foods, which just did not go over well in our family. You know, my brother and I were like, where's the mac and cheese? Where's the frozen pizza? And so like at some point she relents and like my dad becomes the guy that just like heats up the frozen pizza and, you know, and we're just like, yay. (laughs) Um, and so I, I pushed back on that. And, you know, it's one of the things around my, my youth that I regret. I mean, there's a way in which um, some women have formed their identity against what was expected of them, you know, and, and sometimes you do that to your detriment. And this is a place where I feel like I did this to my detriment, you know, but for so whatever- you were making, you were making like a, like even after a while, you were still making a conscious effort to not cook. Like, how, when did you say, this is silly? Who am I robbing here? Um, Probably not until my twenty late 20s or 30s. But one of the things that happened in my life, oh, here's what happened, was that I dated a series of men that were very, very passionate about cooking. Cool. So my college, um, my college boyfriend was a sous chef and then became a chef very young at a restaurant in Austin at a time when this kind of new American cuisine was really taking off there. You know, Austin hadn't really had a lot of those restaurants. It was, you know, Tex-Mex and barbecue and stuff like that. But these new restaurants were starting to crop up. And he was the first person that introduced me to Anthony Bourdain. And this person that I dated, who I thought was so uh, unusual at the time, you know, he was covered in tattoos and he was reading like Hemingway and Fitzgerald and his fingers were all smelled like garlic and had little crescent moons of the, of the oven uh, and, and knife scars all over him. I have now met this person so many different times, you know, this is a type, Yeah, this is a type. And let me tell you, I have also seen this this kind of person coming in and out of recovery. There is a very strong overlap between addiction, hedonism, pleasure-seeking, curiosity, the boundarylessness, and the the high-stress environment of the restaurant creates a lot of of struggle with addiction, which becomes one of the the subtexts of, of this show. Is it also, though, perhaps that people that have those proclivities are drawn to the kitchen. It's not necessarily that the kitchen creates it. It's like that they're they're accepted there. Hundred percent. It's like the same there. thing with writing. You know, like you get drawn to this thing, and then that thing amplifies it. And and you know, your the the strength that you have. You're drawn to these high adrenaline, you know, s- curiosity seeking, um, sensor like very sensuous. Very yeah, sensuous. You're, you're like allowed to be, or I don't know if allowed is the right word, but like you can be messy. And I don't mean, I, I like an, I like to cook in a nice clean environment myself, but like your life can be a mess and you can still be there in ways that maybe if you're like, you know, a, an, an engineer, it's not quite as 
accepting because you just can't have a a bunch of mess in engineering because the bridge is going to fall down. Like in the kitchen, you can make another, you can make another Genois cake, right? And, and start again. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, both creative profession, like, like writing professions and, and restaurant professions enable a certain amount of chaotic lifestyle, right? So uh, that was my college boyfriend. And then I I dated another person in my late 20s. I lived with him. And I think like one of his great pleasures was coming home and cooking dinner for us. And watching him find pleasure in that, that's probably around the time I started wondering, like, why did I push so hard back on this? You know, why did I push back so hard on this? Um, and he would talk about it as meditative Completely. and restorative, as opposed to something that was drudgery. You know, I always saw it as like, I don't want to have to do that. I don't want to have to do that for you. I would come home from like, I'd work a long day wherever, and I would come home or even writing or whatever, and then start cooking. And like my ex and our, my, my husband now is like, well, why don't you just relax? I'm like, I am relaxing. This is for me completely relaxing to be in the kitchens. It's also one of the only places I know of where I can be, I do not need a podcast on. I do not need the television on, though TV on the background is fine if it wants to be on. I can just be there by myself for hours. And it's just, it's, it's so pleasurable and engaging for me and really, really super relaxing. I, I love it. I, yeah, I love it. So I, I don't really get into a lot of like, there's been uh, in the last, I would say 10 or 15 years, like a lot of like chef chic and chef and like cooking show obsessions that people have. And I just don't share. Um, I do happen to love the character of Anthony Bourdain. Like I I think he's fascinating. I loved his travel shows. I also think he's a very problematic character. If you haven't seen the documentary Roadrunner, which is about his life. Um, he ended his life, we, we think, by suicide. Yeah. Um, and it's an incredible documentary. Um, and I, uh, so anyway, I, I, but I've gotten a little tired of the like, I think I've gotten a little tired of two things. One is like the swaggering chef persona. Yeah. And then two is, the the uh almost satiric levels of innovation that really nice restaurants have you know like like this you know oh, like foam yeah like like every, like for a while in Dallas I was going to restaurants and like everything you know you, you had to get this like diagnosis of the the meal before you would sit oh down God. and it was getting like a little bit tiresome completely like it, it felt like it was performative rather than like it the point of the food was how was how much labor had gone into it and a sort of status seeking in its ingredients in a way that just felt like it took me away from the experience and the pleasure of eating. So one of the things I actually appreciate about this this show is that it's not in one of those high-end restaurants. Nope. It's in uh, like a pretty like working class neighborhood where they're making beef sandwiches and yeah. they're working to kind of uh, div- like, like change up and improve that menu, but it it doesn't have that flavor of it at all. And I will tell you that after the first episode of this, 
I don't know that I would have continued watching it. Um, not that I didn't think it was good, but because the the first episode of it of this show is so high intensity and high stress that it was a little bit just like I, I need to like it stressed you out. It stressed me out. Yeah. And it was a lot of yelling. And I don't yeah, like yeah. yelling. Yeah. I really, yeah. really don't like yelling. And one of the things that I think this show interrogates is whether or not that kind of kitchen environment uh, is really necessary to make a place that thrives. How to create a collaborative, cooperative environment where people aren't being yelled at and barked at, but they all feel like they're part of an a project, an experiment. You know, one of the cute things that they do at one point, I mean, they create a hierarchy because, look, you can't just have chaos in the kitchen. You have to create, everybody has to have their station, Absolutely, right? Absolutely, for sure. Yeah, but yeah, one yeah. of the things that comes out of that is that everyone is sort of a chef of their station. Right. And so everyone calls each other, yes, chef. And this has been something I've been seeing around, like on social media, everybody's been saying, yes, chef. And I, I like this idea, this idea that we all have our own, our own um, territory to mine, <clears throat> but at the same time, we all have our area of expertise. In other words, it's not just, I'm the boss and you're underneath me, is that we all have something to contribute to this greater whole. Yeah. I wanted to go back to just something you were saying about things getting frou-frou. Um, you know, when you go to you go to a restaurant or a bar, let's say, and it's kind of new or nice or whatever, and they give you the cocktail menu. And you look on the cocktail menu and like each cocktail has like 14 ingredients. I'm like, I don't want that cocktail. That's not, that doesn't make things better. I'll give another cooking tip I'll, I'll or a cooking tip I'll give is people overuse garlic crazily because they don't really know how to cook. So they're like, right. oh, I'll add some garlic. It's like, no, garlic has a place. I prefer garlic if it's like, it's the pronounced flavor as opposed to just like adding it to other things. But in any case, yes, restaurants can get incredibly frou-frou. You know, the, the chef comes and he's, you know, or the, the server comes and you have to listen to like, I, I was at a restaurant recently, it was literally 10 minutes, the table next to us was getting explained the menu. It's like, you don't need to do this. It's, it's not, I don't need to know where the parsley grew. Okay. It's okay. And the name of the person is sort of like that Portlandia uh, yeah. with the chicken. It's like, so this chicken, was she happy? And I'll, I'll put, I'll put a link to it. It's pretty funny. I will tell you, I know a lot of chefs, a lot of chefs, because when I moved to Portland in 2005, the, um, I started writing for this one site where I would do these really, really, really long chef interviews, like 8,000 words. I just like sit with them. And I, and I became, because also my husband opened a business in 2005, we just knew uh, a coffee business. We knew a lot of the food people. And my dear friend, Troy McClarty, who had been at French Laundry, and he was like chef of the year for about a lovely guy. He owns a bunch of, um, a couple of Indian restaurants now in, um, in Portland. He said, what you want to do when you have a cook come in, you have, you have them make like a scrambled egg or a simple, simple omelet. That, that's how you test how they know how to cook. Do they know how to do the very, very, very simple things? Because if you can master the very simple things, then you've got your building blocks. I mean, this should be obvious, but a lot of times it is. It's like all these bells and whistles and we cooked it this way and it's this and I, I, I'm not particularly interested in that, though, if they can pull it off. Um, great. Okay, so you did stay with the show. Why did you, why did you stay with it? Because I think I've found 
Well, I mean, honestly, I stayed with the show because I knew we were going to be talking about it. And then <laughs> and then as the show went on, I found myself drawn in by these characters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a kitchen is a nice closed environment in which to <clears throat> look at about, you know, something between like six to ten characters that are going to be on their own, like process of discovery over the Mm -hmm. the series Mm -hmm. and as you say they're all they're all kind of struggling with themselves they're all wrestling with themselves and their own brokenness and the habits that they bring in to the kitchen um you know it's also an interesting two things you know one was that it seemed like i i got the sense from the beginning that this was going to be kind of like an interesting look at a certain kind of masculinity you know Mm -hmm. like the the richie the character that you talk about is this guy that's learned to just be kind of a jerk and he's learned to use his muscle and and violence to solve things and one of the things we see is a young woman coming in and she has a lot of different ideas about how to run this place. She tends to work more through collaboration or talking. And you see these two ways kind of contrast against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've thought about how women who are often better at negotiating and collaborating and talking and things like that can bring a lot to these these like formerly male dominated environments and if you you can find a tension between the two and learn from each other one thing i thought was amazing she's 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 young she's extremely ambitious uh she i mean she's really young i don't know how old the actress is who plays it she's amazing too i mean the acting in this is just fantastic. Um, but she's got some real ideas about like kind of like fine cooking and she, but she is so admiring of Carmi because she knows who he is. Like she, she wants to be with him and do whatever they want. Like, okay, if we're going to make beef sandwiches, that's fine. Just so I can work with you. But there's that really, she, she's always trying to push the envelope and she's like trying to make them things and try this and people try it and they love it and it's really tasty. And there's this one thing, and I won't try not to give anything away here where he says to her, it's not ready. And you're thinking, like, is it really not ready? Everybody's tasted this dish that she's created, and it's not ready. But it turns out to not be ready for another reason, which is the scene. Do you remember the one with the tickets, the tickets? Anyway, you have to watch it. But he knows something she doesn't. Yes, she brings negotiation. She brings. She's trying to get people to work together. She's bringing innovation. But what does she not have yet? Because she's young. She doesn't have experience. So she doesn't mm-hmm. understand when he says to her, it's not ready. It's not, uh, it's not really about the dish necessarily. Anyway, I thought it was fascinating. It's just these little things that I, you, I, I haven't read, I have literally read nothing about this show. There's a million think pieces about it. My daughter, when I was telling you, she's like, oh, everybody's talking about that show. Everyone's talking about that actor. I have not read one thing, but I kind of will be fascinated too, because whoever created this understands something about how it works in a kitchen and and just in general, the human condition. Um, all right, so are you glad you stayed with it, Sarah Hepla? Yes, I am. Um, the second to last episode is one of the most high-intensity uh, 
sort of gripping 20 minutes of television that I've seen in a while. Um, it's also a, a very moving, like there's a story about grief throughout this as well. I will say it's um, because one of the things that the the main character is dealing with is the, the suicide of his brother. Um, and he ends up going to Al-Anon. I think this mm-hmm. is one of the first times I've ever seen Al-Anon, which is a sister program of AA, um, depicted in a television show. Tell people what I know what Al-Anon is, but tell people what Al-Anon is if they don't know. So Al-Anon is a, a program that kind of in, introduces the idea of, of codependency. And, you know, really what happens is that uh, AA is founded by a guy named Bill Wilson. His wife, Lois Wilson, founds a program called Al-Anon, which is designed for, you know, people, the the original intended use is like basically wives that are married to addicts and how you can, can basically keep your boundaries and try not to be overwhelmed by your need for caretaking and fixing another person. And it starts to like Al-Anon is really the, the program that introduces this, this language about codependency and, um, you know, it's, I, I have seen it taught, I've, I've seen it more and more in literature recently. I mean, you know, it, it, it also is, um, I mean, I've, I've found it a hard program to crack, um, in the sense that like, I, I know that I need help with boundary issues and, um, and trying to take care of other people, but I, I never quite found my way into it. But I have friends that have have been a part of that program, and they find it to be really profound. I mean, look, basically all these programs, w- what they are is people that have been through the fire helping other people that are walking through the fire, I think, at the right. end of the day. Right. I went to, so my my late ex, when we were together, he was, he was an active alcoholic and I didn't, you know, I was trying to navigate this stuff. And I went to an AA meeting cause trying to figure out like what, like what are, and someone's like, Oh no, you, you're supposed to go to Al-Anon. And I think I went once or twice. It just wasn't, I, I couldn't latch on at the time I was young and had a baby and it just didn't, I just didn't wind up doing it. But yeah, it's, it's a place for people to go where, you know, other people that are, are in the same kind of position where you are, where the person you love and treasure is just like killing themselves or just having these horrible addiction or very difficult addiction issues. And you're watching and you've tried like all the things you know how to do to fix it. And then you realize like you can't fix it. Like you can't. And I get you, maybe you pick up some tips for like what you're not supposed to do or any, or just, just sort of other people in that army with you. You know, yeah, and tips about you know how to handle the fact that you are powerless over people that you love, and the yeah. pain that comes with that, yeah. and the guilt that comes with that. So yeah, so 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 Carmen does go this because his brother um, was addicted to was it pain pain, medication? pain pills yeah. pain pills, um, yeah, um, and they're like one of the things that I love about this is that the show has these great moments of what it is like like what it takes to be great at your job, how hard it is, how much you make mistakes, but the small little joys in getting it right and the the self-respect that you earn. Um 
there is a, a the scene that made me tear up actually was where one of the great uh, storylines that I loved with it was this <laughs> this guy that until now has just sort of worked at McDonald's, but uh, he's now working and handling the desserts, and um, and he uh, becomes very obsessed with making the perfect donut. Mm-hmm. And he becomes so preoccupied by this that uh, he kind of overstresses the equipment and there's this whole catastrophe that happens. And he and and this guy, Carmi Carmen, are, are, are sitting outside and talking about what it is to screw up. And the times when you just inevitably, you know, it, at one point he says, like, I'll never make this mistake again. And Carmen is like, you will. Yeah, of course you will. Of course you will. You will make this mistake. And the pain that comes along with the fact that you're going to make mistakes, the mistakes are going to cost other people things. It's it's inevitable. And that's going to be part of the price of working as a team um, is that you support each other through these these mistakes that you make. I don't know why that particular scene made me tear up, except that I know that I have a lot of fear about letting people down, disappointing people. And because of that, I... I I'm very, very hard on myself. Um, I wonder, you know, I, I said this earlier, but like you, you have to eat every day. Hopefully you're fortunate enough to get, be able to eat every day. And if you are the cook that's feeding people, you get a chance to do it new every day. And so, yes, when he says to him, you will make this mistake again, or you'll make another one. I will say I'm getting all overcome with it now. So yes, he's obsessed with the donut, but he's also making, he's making cakes. Um, I, started making cakes when I was very young. He's he's making this cake and the way the last part of what you do with the cake is you put the frosting on it. And you know, frosting can be a bitch, but he's got one that's a bit um it's not that it's runny, but you can pour it on so that you can make it super smooth. I have to tell you, the act of doing this, it's just, it's almost like a church for me when you get to this point and you're you're making it so beautiful and perfect. I just started crying because I, it, the moment is imbued. You understand that he is having a passage here in the form of making a cake, which I don't see why this should be any less important or transcendent than, you know, running the four minute mile, which I maybe is probably a little harder. <laughs> but, um, you know, it really is. And you, you get the chance to do this. And there's this, this saddest, I don't know if satisfaction is the right word, but this, it fills you. And um, I, I I bake a lot. And everybody who lives with me um, p- puts on weight. It's just inevitable. And they're like, why don't you ever get gain weight? And I'm like, because for me, it's the making of it. It's like, yes, I like to taste it, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm here for the creation of it. So to see him make that and to get that, I, I understand why you become overcome. Because... It's just, it's kind of profound um, when you when you love doing it um, and you become obsessed with it the way with the way he was. And he's a lovely character to watch because, as they all are. I mean, they're he is. All, he was one of my favorites. So. Yeah, they're and all. That, I, I, let me just say real quickly, he's he's played by an actor named Lionel Boyce. They're all blooming in, in this show. 
they're all changing. And of course, you know, someone say, yeah, Nancy, that's uh, that's the way shows go. Like you present dilemmas and you prevent failures and growing. But somehow for me, this one just, just hits in ways that, um, with ways I just loved. Um, I mean, why, why do you think it made you cry so much? Um, I, you know, what is the one thing you say I cry about here on this show is journalism, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I, what I do. I, and well, this is the other thing that I do. It's the world. Maybe it's the world. I know, I know this world. I've been doing this since I was three years old. And this whole world to me is very, is very intimate. And I, I don't know, like, I don't know if, if this show was about, you know, people that raised chickens or, I don't know, soccer players, if I'd be as captivated. But this, for me, just, it just hit, hit, hit everywhere. So I guess that's why. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad I watched it. I think that it was, um, they're, they're, the episodes are 30 minutes long. It's only eight episodes. So you can yeah. watch it in a weekend as I did. Yeah, me too. Um, um and then you asked me to watch a show, didn't you? Yes. So I had my own streaming journey uh, as well. So I became interested in a show, a new documentary on Netflix, uh, a four-part documentary called How to Change Your Mind. Now, this is based on the Michael Pollan book from 2018. And Michael Pollan is a journalist who's mostly been concerned about the ethics of eating. He wrote a famous book called The Omnivore's Dilemma. He's written actually several famous yep. books. Um, and so this book came out in a, a few years ago. And, I, and, and basically what it's interested in <clears throat> is the secret history of psychedelics mm -hmm. and their application in mental health and healing. And this book, you know, that's a wave that's been cresting out of the corner of my eye for several years now. And as somebody who studied mental health and addiction, I found this very fascinating. And when I would hear Michael Pollan, I heard him on, I think, like Fresh Air and some of the other like interview shows. I would catch like little snippets of it. And I was realizing how much about the early years of LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, um, their uses in their therapeutic uses and their research um, application or like the research that had been doing done into them. I didn't know because here's something about me that you should know is that I am a total drug prude. I am like a I was a like 100 percent lush. I came to drinking very early as a young girl, like as a, like I started sipping beer at like six years old and I was drinking kind of regularly by the time I was 13. And so by the time I get to the part of my life where people are experimenting with drugs, I'm sort of like, A, I've got this, like I've got my one true love. I'm a monogamous, uh, <laughs> like escape artist. And that's all I want. And B, I was completely convinced by the 80s rhetoric. I mean, if you are a child of the 80s and you grew up with these war on drugs commercials with this idea that all these other illicit substances will kill you and derange you and blow your mind. I mean, I and I remember in college, people were experimenting with acid 
And they would talk about bad trips and like having these, like, I don't know, the whole thing scared me. So that whole world was uh, sort of not something I ever looked into. You know, I, I, I've never done coke. I've never done, God forbid, I've never done heroin. Um, and so, you know, when I started, uh, when I quit drinking in 2010, so this starts my own journey into the world of AA. And you start to think a little bit deeper about what it is that that drug is doing for you, whether or not that drug was um, as, well, I mean, let me just, let me just say that a lot of my ideas around good drugs and bad drugs dissolve around the time that I start to enter AA. So anyway, I was very curious about this book because I was interested in the the, the healing properties of psychedelics, something that I didn't know that much about. And I had wanted to read this book. It had been on my list forever. But then here we, you know, this is something where I, I do appreciate like the four part documentary series that's going to like m- maybe summarize the book that I wasn't going to be able to read. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so I started watching this and I find it really fascinating. And I find it... Um, moving in in sort of interesting ways i mean you know so there there are four parts here um one is about lsd and its discovery kind of by accident yes in the 1943 i think it's 38 actually i thought they said it was the same year that the atomic bomb was discovered Okay, maybe I'm wrong. Okay. Well, I, I was just reading some. I'm pretty sure it's 38, okay. Okay. and it's a Swiss, it's a Swiss doctor named Albert Hoffman, and he's looking for something else. But like somehow the 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 drug that he's synthesized gets through his fingers, and he has this um, really wonderful experience. And so they've discovered this thing, but they don't really know what the application for it should be. And, uh, you know, so they start sending it out to different researchers. At first he does, but first he does that one, he takes, like he doesn't, so they were apparently making this, um, it's a, it's a Swiss pharmaceutical company. They were looking for something to, I think, relieve, um, the pain that women have after childbirth. Something yeah, like I think that. that's what it was. Yeah. And so they had like lots of one. Then this was called something like number 25 and a little bit got on his fingers. And so he felt, he didn't know what he realized. Oh my goodness, I've absorbed this and it's it's kind of giving me this euphoric sensation. So let me do, let me be a good, you know, researcher and scientist. I'll take some. But they had, he had no idea how much to take because they don't know anything about it. And it's weird. It's made from a, it's made from rye, something that grows on rye, like a fungus that grows on the rye yeah. plant kind of crazy. Anyway, he takes something like, is it 25 milligrams? I don't know. It's, he takes an enormous dose and it is, it, it's, it's crazy. I mean, he's on his bicycle and he, I have to say the graphics, they yeah, have the graph- a lot of animated graphics in this show. They're really, really wonderful. They did a wonderful, wonderful job. Um, but his experience is, is, absolutely terrifying. But then after a bit, it segues into this incredible sort of 
crystalline beauty and certain understandings. And then they they do. They they basically I think we're now in the nineteen fifties. In the fifties it was um something- they open source it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the stories that I knew going into this that I was always super fascinated about was the idea that, you know, Bill Wilson, who is the founder of AA, along with a a collective of other of other people, but he's the primary mover behind it. You know, one of the things that that is one of the foundational ideas of AA is that it is a, is a program of spirituality. You know, it's not just about quitting drinking. There is supposed to be a spiritual experience and a spiritual epiphany that comes along with this. In other words, you don't want to just give away alcohol. You want to get something in return. Mm -hmm. And so, um, the spiritual experience is is something that like having been like 12 years in this program now, I can tell you is something that a lot of people struggle with. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, but but in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the way it's sort of described is there's like this white light experience that Bill Wilson has. And then after that, he's just changed. Well, one of the things they don't tell you <laughs> is that he had been given Belladonna, which is a hallucinogen. It's like a psychedelic. I don't know too much about Belladonna, but I think it was given at the time to to sort of the hopeless drunk variety. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was given a psychedelic. And that is part of what precipitates this white light experience. And later in the 50s, Bill Wilson had started looking at LSD as maybe something that you could give to um, to recovering alcoholics and it could help it could help them transform like it like basically pass over to the other side where they understand that alcohol isn't useful to them anymore right and it's not as a substitute but um I'm oh sorry. that's right that's yeah. right I, this is very important you know like it would be a, like these are drugs like one a one time application of like transformation and the, in the next episode, they they when they we're actually going to be talking about a, a different drug, but um, they said to take this to let go of the maladaptive strategy, whether your maladaptive strategy has been drinking or bulimia or whatever sort of thing that is kind of ruining your life, you're trying to get out of it. You will take a dose, and it will you will be able to understand certain things that when and you know you, you can either release them during this trip or just you understand that you can, you can transform. So. Yeah, exactly. And so he was interested in this. Now this history gets a little bit swept under the rug in AA. I mean, they don't, they don't tend to tell you this Let stuff. Me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. So before the night, well, during the 1950s, when they first started to do a lot of research on this, it was legal. I mean, it was. Yeah, that's right. Well, nobody, nobody had bad nobody associations knew. with it because nobody knew what it was it yet. Was, it's not like it's been classified as a Schedule C drug yet. No, it's you derived know? from plants. It's people like deriving things from plants. We don't know the applications yet. And they, they do it and they start to have some really, really, I mean, the show is super worth watching. They start having some really interesting breakthroughs and understandings of how it can help people with different things. And then it turns into the early 60s and um, Timothy Leary, amongst other people, it starts to become used recreationally. 
And that was the death knell, essentially, to people being able to experiment, to researchers being able to send this stuff out or open source to other laboratories and say, see what you can do with it. And that was, um, it was kind of, I mean, I think it was kind of a double devastation. Number one, you weren't allowed to legally sort of try to find applications where you could be helping cancer patients, where you could be helping people with, you know, OCD or, or different things. And you also had, you know, people claiming like, you know, the Timothy Leary who wanted to put LSD in the drinking water, like, well, this is going to be, it's going to transform all our lives. We're the, we're the people that understand. We're in the know. Tune in, drop out, whatever the, the slogan right. was. We're really, that's that's not, that's not what what can be done with yes of course people party with it but that's not that's not the highest use of what these things are are here for so i'm not surprised like had that not happened i think that they probably could have still included uh, the understanding that that Bill Wilson used this in the book because it, it would have been like, well, of course, because look at this incredible thing with these incredible, but now, no, now it's not that. Now it's like Richard Nixon saying like the number one enemy um, are drugs in this country. So of course you can't include it in the big book anymore. You just can't. It's, exactly. it's tainted. Yeah. yeah. And over the years, you'll hear people, you know, kind of throw throw shade on Bill Wilson as being like, you know, known acid user or known oh. as, you know, and it's sort of like, no, 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 no. You don't get it. Like, this is actually, uh, this is, we're trying to find ways to k- get people faster into uh, an idea that the that the habits they've created and what we might call like the deep neural pathways have not served them. Right. You know, and you're trying to jump that engine into something else. Right. Um, The second episode is about psilocybin and what you might call magic mushrooms. And I found this one very moving. So moving. Wow. So, so moving. So, um, psilocybin mushrooms, as probably everybody knows, they just grow. Um, they grow in many parts of the world. They have a they have a section where they're talking about where it's down in Oaxaca, and that's kind of a crushingly at the end. That story becomes hor- horrific. Oh, that's I mean, a yeah. Can I tell uh, that story yeah, real quickly? Sure, sure, which sure. is that basically um, in in 1957, or, or I'm sorry, not in the mid 50s, uh, this you know Western guy, you know, he's, he's interested in mushrooms. He travels to Oaxaca. Sorry. I just wanted they when they, when they ID him on his first thing, banker and mycologist, a mycologist oh, yeah. studies mushrooms. He was also like this rich banker dude. It was a banker and mycologist. I was wondering Wasser. why I couldn't remember anything about him. And it's because he's a banker. It's so yeah. completely random, but he is obsessed with mushrooms. Yes. And so he discovers that there are these mushrooms in the, in Mexico, in the Mexican Andes, uh, or I don't know. If that's, it's around Oaxaca. It's Oaxaca. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, he goes there and he finds a woman that uh, does a ceremony for him. He finds it transformative. He comes back to America and writes a big story in, I think it's Life magazine. Life magazine, which was the biggest magazine in the country at the time. Yeah, there's like millions of people that read this and she writes her own story in another magazine and it becomes like this um meaning his becomes, wife his wife writes it not the not the shaman oh, in, yeah. not the woman in Mexico yeah, yeah his that's wife right. is also a mushroom mycologist right. and she writes one for another publication which is in the it says read by tens of millions of people so exactly. this is a big big deal 
And then what happens, of course, is this 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 creates a whole hipster, you know, like like flooding into that area. And so suddenly what had become what had been a small village is now overrun by celebrities like Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger and people that are seeking this kind of less ordinary escape. The town turns on the woman that had been the... She's like an old grandmother. I mean, she's a yeah. old, she's probably like in her 80s and she's a, she's indigenous. So I don't, I, I don't know. They don't say what tribe she is, but I've been down to Oaxaca. So she's going to be Miztec or Zapotec or something. I don't, I don't know. And um, they burned, they burned down her house. Yeah. And she's just like, it's anyway, which is just unfortunate. It's kind of weird. I had the sensation after that story. And then the earlier story with, with Timothy Leary that, you know, kind of like the the counterculture and the hipsters kind of ruin things in a sense or they they make them I maybe ruin is the it, they become they become sidetracked or impure or something and so and, one of the things that appeals to me about psychedelics is the idea that they are supposed to enhance connection and our connectedness with other people and that feels like a different usage than I, I would always hear that they were they were modes of escape, you know, dropping out, you know, mm-hmm. leaving society. But it feels like a lot of these these properties are about healing yourself so that you can be more engaged with people, that they are agents of connection rather than escape. Well, so it's really the the second episode is, and I've only seen the first two. Really, really moving, and they're talking about using uh, psilocybin for people that are um, are okay. Uh, I guess, in a sense, also broken people. Not broken people in the same way as in the kitchen in the bear, but people who are dealing with like later stage cancer. People that have suffered, like we're talking minute minute by minute OCD or incredible pain. That one guy that has the, the, what he said, it was like having a burning ice pick stab him in the back of the brain eight times a day. And he was basically considering suicide because what was the point of living? Like, this is not, this is not living. Um, So these are people that are um, under very, very um, supervised circumstances. And it's, it's always beautiful. It's always like a, a nicely dimly lit room. And there are people there, they lay them in a bed and they're, they're, you know, people are holding their hands. Sometimes there's music and they, they experience the drug and the, what they experience almost to a person, what was that thing at the end? Michael Pollan was asking the older cancer patient gal. It's called the, um, it's like, um, it's a test to see like where you've gone in terms of what's happened to you during the trip. Like, mm-hmm. did you, did you experience like that you were like one with everything in the universe? And I, and I'm sorry, I'm distilling it badly. And it, she's like, Oh my God, profoundly. Yes. Did, was this experience something that you, you couldn't put into world, words? She's like, yes, I've been an English teacher most of my life and I cannot exactly tell you, but what you're what you were saying is like, some people are like, you know, tune in, drop out, take the acid, go off and have your own little trip. But people that are using it in a different way and these, these, they really are needing something and they are using this drug to, to break through. They, they feel a connectedness and a, and a, and a life changing 
um, experiences, including um, the guy with OCD. I mean, I just broke down and wept. The one when he's talking about his son and his life. And it was, I mean, you have to watch this. I can't, I'm not even going to paraphrase what what happened to him when he went on this um, this trip, very, uh, very supervised. And by the way, let me ask you a question and then I'll, I'll answer it. Would you, would you be interested in, in being a person who took um, the drug under these circumstances or another circumstance? Would you want to be, take, a, let's say, hallucinogens or, or acid or something like that? Yeah. Well, I've become very, very uh, curious about it. And I think that as psychedelics, like I am somebody who is sober, right? I don't drink alcohol. But then there's this question about what does it mean to live as a sober person? Like, and there's different interpretations of that term. You know, like for some people that means, like for some people that means I don't do caffeine. But, uh, but you know, I, I drink coffee and I drink, uh, I smoke cigarettes, which, you know, was long and a, a sort of adaptive strategy of, of alcoholics in the program. So that's nothing new. Um, but as our ideas about these different drugs change, I think psychedelics represent a challenge for the sober community to kind of figure out, like, is this something that we feel like is like, can I be a sober person and experiment with psychedelics is really the question that I'm asking. And I think that in the same way that, you know, you can do farm, like, like, there was a time where you would hear in AA like that people weren't supposed to use pharmaceuticals. I think as a, as a general rule, they don't do that anymore. Um, but the interpretation of sobriety is different for for every group and person. And, you know, for me, the, the, the thing about it is, am I using this to try to escape? Um, or are you using it to explore, right? right. I, I will tell you, so Nick Gillespie of Reason Magazine, a good friend of mine, um, he's sober. And he has been um, experimenting with, with different drugs in a very, very, you know, whether it's microdosing or taking a particular kind of trip, um, in order to to explore. And his girlfriend for a long time, I don't, I don't think they're still going out. Her name is Sarah Rose Siskind. And she has been very involved in also trying to explore. She has a, a show that she puts on a live show called Just Say No, uh, K-N-O-W. And she's kind of she's kind of funny, but also she's like taking these these drugs. Now they've they've asked me a couple of times, like, oh Nancy, do you want to like do whatever it is with us? And I I asked you the question whether you'd be interested, because I would not I do not want to, to try this. Um, a couple of reasons. Number one, I did do drugs when I was a kid. I dropped acid when I was 14 and thought it was great and did it a few more times, never did it again. I did a little Coke in the 80s. Like I never, unfortunately, I never like had a, you know, I never wanted to go deeper into things. But I just decided, I think before my daughter was born, I just was like, I'm never doing another drug. I'm just never. And the mm -hmm. only time I went back on that was writing an article about uh, pot growing in Oregon because it was like it became this huge industry like eight years ago I was writing about this one farm and this person and so she gave me some like I, we had some like edibles and I tried a few and of course hated it again and I I just don't I just decided at a certain point I'm never ever doing another drug I think it's interesting I can understand the curiosity but it's just a line I drew however 
I definitely would sit with someone doing it. Like I would right. be the person holding their hand. Um, one of the things that that people are, there are certain things that every single person in this world will experience. Well, maybe not the second one. Everyone will experience death. There's, that's inevitable. That's going to happen. And most people are going to experience grief, right? And sometimes crippling grief, like they can't get out of it. And this is one of the things, especially with, um, with the psilocybins in the second episode, this is what they are are helping people with. So if you have a cancer and um, you you have to live it, well, how do I how do I approach this? Am I in fear every day? Am I like clinging by my fingernails? Right. Or can can this mushroom, can I somehow take a trip, for lack of a better word, and understand it in a different way and understand it in a way that it's it's actually part of human consciousness and, and, and actually it's going to be okay. Like I still might have to suffer with pain, but I'm not afraid anymore. Oh my God. I was really moved by the stories of people that were facing death. And then it felt like the psilocybin helped to alleviate that crushing fear that they had. Can you imagine? I mean, this is, un this is. And there's a question as to what it's doing. I mean, you know, like one of the things that this pushes you into is just the mysteries of consciousness. We don't really know exactly what these drugs are doing, but if it alleviates this fear, then I would argue that it has, it has medical uses. Absolutely. And this is what, you know, several people that one uh, gentleman, I can't remember his name, but he's, he's was a researcher for a long time. Uh, and then, you know, it, everything had to get kiboshed because things became illegal and it became a schedule one drug, which is like, uh, who do they have that one guy um, that I, that I um, texted you about this morning, the mushroom guy, oh, what's his name? I texted you and I was like, oh my God, I think I interviewed him. And it turned Paul out I had- Paul Stamets? Paul Stamets. He's like this big, huge mushroom guy who I actually wound up interviewing for an article I did for the um, LA Times Magazine when I went up with these crazy mushroom hunters up in Alaska, which was a great, great fun story. Um, but uh, he's like, how can you- how can you outlaw something that grows out of the ground, which the government did? They made it a Schedule One drug. So people's research kind of stopped, including this one researcher who was helping people like not, these were like not hippie guys that wanted to take a drug trip. He was helping people. I think there were 48 people that were like working on high level products, but they were like stuck. So they put them in this controlled environment. They took a trip and to a person, they got unstuck. Now, I don't know much more about the study than that. They also tie in about how um, how some of these drugs were influential in Silicon Valley and the early computer <coughs> makers, right? Right. That's really interesting that it's the idea that like it kind of helped them see connections that other other people might not have seen. It kind of helped them jump a level, so to speak. I mean, but um, if you can, if you can, you know, not just alleviate grief or fear, but sort of transcend it, because I think that's what they're saying that these do. You you move toward it, it's terrifying, and then you move through it, and you understand something that you didn't understand before. Again, this is profound, and this is how how would you not want to help people do this? I mean. Yes, maybe people abuse the drugs. People are always going to abuse things. But this is just this 
this could be super necessary if it could move back into the mainstream, which it is a little. This this one researcher whose stuff got kiboshed because it became a Schedule One drug. Well, now you are again allowed to start. I guess it was at Johns Hopkins. He had done the original mm-hmm. one. You're allowed to again start experimenting and helping people. And he's doing it with his son, which is what's so interesting. Who has become one of the leading researchers here. And it's it's kind of beautiful. He's like, I just can't believe I stayed alive long enough to do this, to really see how we can maybe help people do these very, very hard things. And of course, I mean, let's qualify this. They're, they're, you know, they're making this documentary. They're going to, you know, they're going to use research that conforms to what they're saying. Of course. But but even so, it does. I mean, these are people talking to you and telling you their stories. So I, I'm I'm all for it. Well, when you when you study alcohol and its effects, I mean, one of the things that starts to seem very arbitrary is why is so is alcohol so casual and accepted when it has really uh, like when abused can have incredibly damaging effects. I mean, it can be addictive, it can be lethal, it creates, uh, you know, amnesia in in some people, in 50% of the population if they drink too much when you look at blackouts, you know. And and these uh, psychedelics that we're talking about, you know, they're non-toxic, like you can't, you can't die on them, and they're non-addictive. And like in the case of psilocybin, they're natural. I mean, one of these guys points out, like, it's ridiculous that a species can be illegal. Like, right. what's the hubris of humans that we outlaw a species? Well, um, it's, it's political reasons, too, you know? And, right. and and also, like, we want to save people from themselves. Well, people might abuse it. Yeah, well, they're going to abuse everything. They're going to, you know, abuse ringdings or, you know, or or booze or, or, or cigarettes. I mean, they're going to do it. So you should now... The, People that don't want to abuse it, want to do good things with it, they can't do it because some other people are like this is stop trying to monitor. Let let people do their explorations. Let these let these researchers do their explorations and let's find out new things that help people. Um the next two episodes, the, the next one is about MDMA. Um it's, you know, talks about its use in psychotherapy circles back in the the 70s before it became illegal in the 80s. And again, it gets, you know, I didn't really know this story that MDMA had been, uh, I think it it is created, let's see if I have in, in my notes, they were looking, it, it's actually patented in 1912. And what? researchers were looking for a blood clot agent. And they they patented it, but it just sat on the shelf until the 1970s. Like nobody really knew what to do with it. And then there's this doctor, his name is Dr. Sasha Shulgin. And he performs, you know, experiments and he realizes that, you know, oh, this could have use, you know, because it creates, the, it evokes this feeling of love and closeness. And so psychotherapists start using it in their practice as a way to kind of dissolve some of the barriers between people. Um, and so, but then, it, and it's legal until 1985. Uh, but then it, again, they use this phrase, escapes the lab and it enters the culture and it gets, somebody brands it as ecstasy that we didn't really hear who, you know, and then, then it becomes the club drug of the eighties and nineties. Um, but, and, and after that, like after it gets associated with this, like, you know, wild partying that kind of signals the end of 
of its use in a therapeutic setting. Um, there's a guy. It ruined it. It's just like, this is, this is kind of sad, you know? Anyway. Partying kids ruin everything. But imagine if they did this, you know, if you looked at college binge drinkers and said like, well, so, so this is the way people are using alcohol. Got it. Forbid it for everybody. Yeah. Prohibition like, as opposed to this is, you know, excess rebellion, envelope pushing and, you know, and, and, a, and a ridiculous use of a, a leisure drug that has innumerable uses. Like, you know, you can sip a glass of wine or you can do a keg stand, which is when you stand, you, you <laughs> put the person upside down and then put a spout into their mouth. I tell you this because I know that you don't know what keg stands are. I, I did not know what keg stands are, and I still do not understand why you'd want to do it. And wouldn't it come out your nose? I'm going to be honest with you. I've never done a keg stand. I, yeah, I don't, I've never seen a keg. First of all, you know what I thought a keg stand was? I thought it was a stand that you put a keg on. Like, yeah, that, well, yeah, that would be a natural thing that you would think. Yeah. Anyway, I, I missed. There are a few. I have a few gaps in my in my uh, in my learning. All right. So so this guy Rick Doblin, um, he is really um, even though ecstasy gets outlawed, he becomes very uh, committed to the idea of bringing it back. Um, and so much so that he goes and gets his PhD and writes his entire thesis on how to get approval from the FDA. And this becomes the blueprint that a lot of these other like lines of, of psychedelic, psychedelic drugs, they're, they're following what he's done. You know, MDMA has kind of made it the farthest in this, in this march away from, from being seen as like a recreational drug with no, with no, um, medical application. So one of the things that I found moving about this episode um, was that, and when you think about MDMA, at least I do, I think about like, you know, young kids in a club, but the two, uh, two of the voices that we hear talking about its effects here, uh, one is a veteran from the Iraq war. Um, and one of them is a cop. And they're looking at ways that this can be used to treat trauma in these high violent, you know, uh, jobs and pursuits, you know, where, where so many of these, the cops and the, and the veterans have PTSD. Um, and there's a, there's a, in fact, the cop is so interesting. He's actually training to become an MDMA assisted psychotherapist so that he can help cops with this because one of the things we you know about cops is that they more of them die by suicide than by anything else we've both i mean sarah dated a cop i've written about a lot of cops it's a it's a it's a very rough gig that they have to keep a lot of things to themselves or they feel that they have to they can't mm -hmm. they can't ever like they can't show any kind of weakness including like they're at a shooting and they're like picking up someone's brains off the sidewalk, but they're not going to go home and tell their wife about it because they got to just <clears throat> carry on. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, the scenes you see is this cop actually undergoing one of these treatments and he says, I can explore sadness without being sad. Does that make oh. sense? And then wow. the, the guy is like, yeah, that's exactly it. 
I will note that I saw in this, uh, I only saw again the first two, there were a lot of men weeping. You know, this is not something that men do very openly. In in the main, I'm, I'm sure there are some that are more cryy. My dad, when he got older, he was more Pepsi commercial. Come on. <laughs> but um, no, they're weeping from like the depths of something. And that was that was really, really interesting. I'm going to overuse the word profound in this episode completely, but I was, um, I, I, I definitely noted that happening. I have to wonder if psychedelics have particular, uh, like, like, uh, what do I want to say? A- anyway, like they'd be particularly helpful for men who are so often so resistant to talk therapy and psychotherapy. Wow. It's like it unlocks women. Their stuff is closer to the surface. That's they're right. Tell you, they're encouraged to tell you like that. I mean, literally, have you, I have known so many dudes. I remember asking my husband and his friend, Dario, was this big, guy works rocket scientist. And I said to them, on average, just on average, how many times a year do you cry? And they looked at me, they're like, none. Like, like it was just like not even a question. And uh there are just a lot of I I have other friends that just like I I don't cry. Michael Moynihan, I remember saying once or twice, it's like I just like this thing I almost like, man, I almost choked up. But I he's like, I was taught like you don't cry. It's like socialized, but then they, there are also phys- physiological reasons that I've read this somewhere. Well, yeah. Testosterone is something yeah. that keeps you from crying, but they're don't. also, they're socialized around that. You know, of course. I remember this interview with Michael Ian Black, who is a comedian and he had written a book and I think he was on Fresh Air and he talked about how when he was a little boy, he would cry all the time. Now this is true. Little boys cry more than little girls. And is that true? Uh, yes, yes. And then when, as they get older, it's the opposite. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, he had this memory of um, his, I don't know if it was his mom or some authority figure coming and saying like, you know, don't be a crybaby. Like you can't do this. Like don't cry. And so he just swallowed it. And now he said as an adult, he can't cry, but he has something that he had called like almost like they're wet dreams, but he's crying. Oh, wow. Oh, 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 oh. It's like these <gasps> dreams of release, but he's just weeping. Yeah. And I I must have seen wow. that interview, what, wow. seven years ago? And it's always stayed with me. That's, that's, wow, that's moving. Um, and so, yes, the, the, the depictions of men experiencing the kind of catharsis that I don't think I realize like how, how free and easy that is to me, you know, that I can just, I I really, I cry very easily. It's a, it's a burden sometimes, but I mean, it is actually, it's a really wonderful release. Usually like after I cry, I'm like, I'm much better now. Uh, When my, my ex got cancer the second time and um, was it the second? No, it was the first time. And my daughter was already living in New York. She was 24 at the time. And he was staying with us. And we hadn't told her yet. And um, he was lying on her childhood bed. It's in Portland. And he just broke down. And he said, I don't care for myself. I don't care what this is going to do to me. I care what it's going to do to Tava, our daughter. And he just he just cried. And I just sat there with him. I kept my hands on his chest. And after about two minutes, he stopped. And he goes, Wow. That felt really good. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so, 
Uh, I know. The last episode is about mescaline. I still haven't finished it, actually, but this is about, I think it would be interesting to you because it's about the use of the peyote cactus um, in cere- like indigenous ceremonies and how this was something that uh, when the Spanish came over in the 1600s, it's one of the things they outlawed because they saw these um, these tribes performing ceremonies and having, you know, a connection to God and to spirituality that threatened them. Sure. Um, sure. And so it tells the story of of a lot of these, you know, native tribes getting pushed onto reservations. You see these pictures of these little boys before, like with their with their braids and their headdress, and then you see it switch into like their Victorian school boarding picture, you mm-hmm. know, and it gives you a sense of how this identity, the connection to each other, but also a connection to a creator or God had been stripped away from them. Um you know, one of the things that they, that they bring up is like, is like how absurd it is that this whole country is founded on freedom of religion and the people we take the country from to, to exercise our freedom religion are being denied their religious freedom. Of course. I mean, it's just absolutely galling. And they have this, they have this, this, um, this line that's like, kill the Indian, save the man, which is is it's it's just it's and and then you think about what alcohol does. we introduce alcohol to them and like what alcohol does to the indian communities meanwhile they've lost um this this sense of sacred of sacred ceremony so clinton brings back uh, a law uh, to allow these ceremonies in the 90s somehow i remember when this happened yeah i totally remember because they were the i obviously know a lot of natives. They were like, hell yeah. Not that they had stopped doing it necessarily. Oh yeah, of course. A lot, like a lot of these things, these things have gone underground, but yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Mescaline, when I was uh, in my, I guess, early twenties, late early twenties, I was still in college and uh, they started selling mescaline like at Washington Square Park or someplace. I don't know where we got it, but they were these, and of course it wasn't like real mescaline from the plant. It was, I don't even know what it was, but there was a little teeny, teeny little purple barrels, like tiny, tiny, tiny. And I have to say, out of any drug I ever did, this was the most fun. We used to call it the laughing drug. It, first of all, they cost like four bucks and you'd just like pop it in your mouth and go walking around. We used to wind up at this little uh, Ukrainian bar in the East Village. Had no name. It was just like the bar on East 7th. I would just sit there and laugh our asses off for like three hours. And it wasn't so much like trails or trippiness or anything like that. I don't know what it did or what it was made out of, but it was glorious and super fun. And we called it mescaline, but I don't, I don't really know what it was. Anyway, that was a fun drug. (laughs) So, so these are all stories that have a little, like a little dose of history, a little dose of, you know, cultural commentary, but they also just make you think about what are the ways that we can, we can use, you know, that, that we can, closer to each other what to what extent do we use drugs to facilitate that um to what extent do we do we um i don't i don't know like well they're they're all about the they're about the mystery of life and consciousness 
two things. Number one, I'd like to admit that I am the horrible hipster that ruined things for everybody if I'm taking fake mescaline from Washington Square Park as opposed to using something medicinally. So I will cop to that. I will also say I did those drugs with two friends um, that I I see one still occasionally, Jerry and another guy, Stephen. And um, it's going to sound kind of corny, but it was kind of binding um, for the three of us to do these things together, um, to sort of just experience this, even though it's just like laughter. But that's kind of important, you know, to spend hours just laughing with these two people. Um, so anyway, I don't even know if that dr- drug still exists. I have no idea. Again, this was a really, really long time ago. Um, um, have you ever been with someone when they died? No. Have you? I have. Well, you have. Yeah, have, you've been with two people. Uh, three. Uh, actually, four, but one was just because I happened to be there. It was my brother's friend's dad had a heart attack right in front of me and died. But I've, I've been at the bedside of three people that died. One was in a very um, medicalized hospital setting. That was Will Sampson, my, my late father-in-law. Um, um, and one was in the hospital with my late stepfather, David Levine. And I'll just tell this story just because we were talking a little bit about the mystery of death. You know, it's very scary and what happens. Um, it was, I got there, I flew an emergency from California and I got to the room and it was my stepfather who I'd known since I was a teenager. This was in 2009. Um, and he was not conscious anymore. Um, his kids were there, grown kids, his grandson, my mother, my brother. I mean, the room was kind of packed. My mother was exhausted. She was so out of it. My brother's like, I'm going to take her home. I'm like, good, good, good. And then, um, everybody else peeled off except for his son and me. His son's a little older than I was. And, um, it was now like three o'clock in the morning and we're just like watching and the breaths are getting less and less. And, and I'll qualify this by saying my stepfather, my late stepfather was a very well-known artist, caricaturist for the New York Review of Books, David Levine, also an incredible painter. I'll put a link, some links to his paintings here in the show notes. Um, anyway, he was always all about beauty. Like he would sit and watch the Knicks game on TV, but he would have like a book of, you know, Degas or something in his lap. He's just, it was hundred percent, almost like monomaniacal in terms of what he was able to do. Anyway, um, his son was looking for a way to charge his cell phone. And there's something that's that's said, like people will dip when a loved one is looking away because they don't, yes. they kind of need a little bit of privacy. I've heard this yes. a lot. But in any case, his son was doing that. And I was just sitting with Dave. I was just kind of watching him. And all of a sudden he went, he went, like this sound, like sip through a straw. Hmm. And then instantly the the skin on his face turned the color of beeswax and kind of like kind of sucked back onto his bones and this thing like this little zip zip flew out the window all this happened like very quickly while I was watching and how i interpreted it and i know we are we interpret things the way right. we need to as humans i interpreted it as dave saying to me okay nancy one last moment of beauty mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't scary. I mean, obviously for me, I'm here in the living, but it didn't, it didn't look, didn't look scary for him either. So I know that one of the reasons I found, uh, especially the psilocybin episode so moving is that I've been, you know, I've had like an outsized fear of death since the time I was a little girl. Mm-hmm. And so I found a certain amount of comfort in these stories mm-hmm. and, you know, I don't, 
I don't pretend to know what happens to us when we die, but I am calmed by the idea of a kind of energy or cosmic consciousness. I don't know what you would call it. Mm -hmm. They do that very well. They, they, they do it very well in the show and it's, there's, there's no woo woo or anything like that. It's basically an understanding. Um, yeah. All right. Okay. Um, I, I just have a few little bits of housekeeping. Obviously, go subscribe. Um, you can sign up and be a paid subscriber. I have two little tiny little announcements. So some of you know I have a, a little media site called palomamedia.com. Um, it got a redesign. We launched a 2.0. I actually haven't done anything. I've been so crazy busy and under the gun, but my peeps that I work with. So uh, you can go take a look at that. Um, we'll try to get some new material up there. And then I have um, I have a piece publishing this week on Barry Weiss's uh, Common Sense site. I don't know what day up by the time you you hear this but um that's that's nice I've, I've written one tiny other piece for them from ukraine but this is a larger so i'm i i love barry and i'm and i'm glad to be there because she sure has some um, interesting people um um publishing over there um what are you up to lady mm, i'm finishing up a couple of uh stories i have a, a piece about the cheerleaders the dallas cowboys cheerleaders that's going to be the cover story in texas monthly for september so this is really telling the story uh that i told in the podcast it's the it's the print magazine version of the podcast that kind of goes through the complicated 50-year history of of the the cheerleaders and uh so that's i'm finishing that up and uh September issue, baby. You know, yeah. people should know the September issue and December issue are always like the big issues of the year. So she's sure. on the cover for September. Um, oh, Sarah. Oh, my God. Oh, is, good God. What is the name of the show? Smoke them if you got them. Wow. We almost forgot this time. That was a um, close one. Yeah, it was. Guys, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.